Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today I have the great privilege of kicking off a new series here at E3. Man, you guys are getting better at this. Where? For the next five weeks, we are going to be working through this Old Testament book called Ruth, which is an incredibly popular biblical story and one of the more unique texts in all of Scripture. And that's because Ruth is what today we would call a slice-of-life story. Who understands what that is? Anybody? Any nerds out there? Asia, yes! My favorite junior high student. You're not allowed to have junior high student or favorites, but... She was. Anyway, <laughs> slice of life stories. For those unfamiliar with this, this is a term that refers to a narrative that provides a naturalistic representation of everyday life in a specific time. A few examples in terms of literature, we'll start there, which FYI, Ricky, my doctorate holding genius English teacher wife, definitely gave me the answers to this quiz. But a few literary examples. The first, classic, Little Women. Anyone read this book? Yep, a classic novel that I have definitely not read by Louisa May Alcott. It tells the story and depicts the lives of four sisters who are living in 19th century America, which in turn becomes this invitation to reflect on some big societal issues that faced women at this time, everything from domesticity to female empowerment, family work, etc. And that makes it a great example of what we're talking about, this kind of slice of life story. Its plot is incredibly naturalistic, small, focused, personal, right? It just zooms in on these four women living in a time. And yet, by simply depicting their ordinary lives with the good, the bad, the ugly, the struggles, the joys, it subtly pushes us to consider what its characters' experiences reveal to us about our society, our world, our lives. Again, perfect example of what we're talking about today. Another novel, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. This is a great book, I've been told. <laughs> For those that do not know, uh, this story, this novel, tells the story of the Watsons, a lower middle-class African-American family who, in the 1960s, traveled to Birmingham, Alabama, leading them to get caught up in one of the more tragic events of the civil rights movement. Again, though, it's a perfect example of these slice-of-life stories. It tells this very specific story that through simple depiction of the ordinary life of a person of color living under Jim Crow's America becomes a powerful communication on the tangible, concrete realities of racial injustice in our country. And these stories aren't confined to literature. Movies like Roma or one that we actually just recently viewed here at E3 as part of our True Color ministry, Minari. Anyone come to that event? These movies are exactly what we're talking about. In these, the slice-of-life format gets applied to socioeconomics and, and immigrant experiences, everything in between. I mean, even high school flicks, like Dazed and Confused, Lady Bird, apply this framework to coming-age-of-age tales, reflections on generational divide for comedic and dramatic purposes alike. And each, the wildly different, shares that core commonality because each, when you get down to the bare bones of it, is a small story that depicts and bears witness to the ordinary experiences, good, bad, and ugly, of relatable people like us living in a time or place in this human history. And it's that core commonality that, for me personally, makes these stories so dang intriguing. 
Because when you think about it, they really are the antithesis of what is the most dominant form of storytelling in our culture today. Don't believe me? Just think about it. What stories dominate our cultural landscape? Superheroes. What else? Political. Star Wars? Anybody? Any nerds out there? No? No one's seen Mandalorian? Liars. Frauds. <laughs> Hypocrites. No. It's not, is it not the stories with the biggest scale, the biggest stakes, right? We're talking Marvel, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, The Last of Us. Narratives where the fate of the universe or humanity hangs in the balance of seemingly every plot of every story ever told. Like you'd think we'd get sick of needing the world saved by someone in a cave, but apparently that happens every other day in these cosmos. Am I right? And it's not that these are inherently bad. I loved The Last of Us. That show is a banger. Go check it out. Unless you're under the age of 18. <laughs> Pastor Mike did not tell you to do that. It's not that these are inherently bad. Huge stakes are thrilling. They create easy buy-in. Like, of course, I should care about a plot in which history may end based on what takes place within its story. But it does accentuate the uniqueness of these stories that forsake that louder route in favor of a small narrative built solely upon the personal stakes of singular people's daily choices and relationships. It highlights why such stories, I think, can be more impactful than these big ones. Because you see, for most of us, and I don't mean to spoil this for you, most of us, saving the world will never be the stakes of our daily lives. You're not going to have to make that decision. Bad news, you're not the president of the United States. You're not even the president of E3. You're not even on wise council. Anyway, these aren't the stakes of our lives, right? They're not the stakes of my life. For most of us, we are never going to be in these situations, which means that they are not relatable to us. Are y'all tracking with me? But we all know the feeling of making daily decisions in our careers, friendships, families, community that carry a real human impact upon ourselves and those around us in this time and place. And despite the low scale, let me ask you, do those stakes feel small? and unimportant to you in the moment. When you're making those decisions, they feel meaningless, trivial. No. Those moments, those decisions, those are our lives, right? That's what it means to be a human. That's what it means to be Mike. That's what makes these stories so powerful. We can actually find ourselves within them, despite how personal and seemingly specific they are. In their humanity, they allow us to witness the lives of people who, despite maybe different experiences, share immense commonalities with us, turning their small tales into these huge vehicles of empathy and reflection upon who we are, how we live, who we are becoming in this time and place. And I start here because, y'all, that is what Ruth is. That's what makes the book of Ruth so unique. You see, in essence, it's a slice-of-life story that is just, boom, dropped into the very center of the biblical narrative, which, if you're like me, was befuddling. I love that word, befuddling, if I could be frank. Because as a kid, I was taught that every biblical text existed solely to reveal one thing, which is clear truth statements about God. 
Thus, every story had to either be a sweeping tale with the highest possible stakes, the very direction of history was on the line, or it had to be a dense theological essay that explicitly conveyed some sort of fact about ideas of the cosmos, like sin and salvation, eternity, etc. Anyone else? You know what didn't exist in my Bible? A story about some nobody living around 400 BC. And yet, that's what we find here. And don't get me wrong, texts like that explore salvation and these dense essays, they do exist in the scriptures. In fact, that's largely true of what comes before and after Ruth. You see, it is this fascinating thing. Before it are the stories of creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, Israel's formation, you know, the foundational building block stories of the biblical story, including like the very cosmos coming into being, right? Becoming broken. And all of these stories, they build to Judges, the book immediately that precedes Ruth, which encapsulates this really depressing, dark time period where lacking leadership or direction, God's people spiral downward into idolatry, violence, and civil war, a big moment in the story. And then immediately after Ruth, we're going to find First and Second Samuel, which describes the formation of Israel's royal line, their kingship, building to the story of this really important guy in the biblical story. Who knows who it is? David. David, King David, the most important king in Israel's history, the one who pulls Israel out of the chaos of judges. In other words, what we have here is we've got two foundational moments in God's story with cosmic states, the very like, fate of God's people is on the line, and then bizarrely sandwiched between them is the book of Ruth, this slice of life tale set during judges with seemingly the lowest possible stakes you could imagine. And everything about this story diverges from what's around it takes place in the boonies, for example. I mean, the Wakulla of Israel. It is... <laughs> it's set in this place called Bethlehem, right? Which is essentially rural farmland, Israel. Its story seems very simplistic. It's extraordinarily dull and comparative to what surrounds it. There is no violence, there are no villains. Its characters aren't racked by eternal turmoil. Oh, I'm David. I'm so broken. Uh. It simply depicts the ordinary life events, both joyous and tragic, of just several good people making their way in this world before concluding with one of Scripture's only true happy endings. It's like the biblical narrative is going at light speed and then, bam, it just screeches to a halt with this charming tale about everyday life of some ordinary average just trying to get by. That's what's plopped down in the middle of one of the most dramatic moments in Israel's story, which pleads the question, why? Why does this exist? Why does a book like this belong in the scriptures? What role does it play? What does it teach us? And that why question, for me, that's what brings Ruth to life because that why, revolves around Ruth's two most fascinating features. I think two of the most fascinating features of any story in the Old Testament. However, I'm afraid those only make sense in the context of its larger story. So you're gonna have to hold that thought. Classic Mike tease, we'll come back to that at the end. And first, we need to explore Ruth's introduction, and I wanna get that broader plot in view, because I wanna come back to these two points, and it's gonna bring this whole thing together. So. We're just going to dive into the book. We begin in verse 1, where we read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of where? Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Aphrodites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So we're introduced to this small Israelite family living during the time depicted in the book of Judges, a father, a mother, and two sons. And what happened? There's a what? There's a famine common in the ancient world. And this forces them to move from their home in Bethlehem to where? Moab. So they move from Israel to this place called Moab. This is a very interesting choice for the author in this story. You see, Moab's inhabitants, the Moabites, were actually ancient enemies of God's people, of Israel. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 23, you're going to find that the earliest Israelites prohibited Moabites from joining them in their community. Largely because, as the story goes, Moab refused Israel hospitality in the wilderness as they fled from Egypt. The blood feud. These people do not get along. Thus, understand, though not off limits, Moab was certainly not a positive place for an ancient Israelite to live. However, Moab's got food, so to Moab they go. But then, verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married who? Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So, Unexpectedly, what happens? Tragedy strikes, right? The father dies, which in a patriarchal society was a huge deal. You see, you can actually see the ripple effects right here in the text, because once this father dies, what are the sons forced to do? To marry. In the ancient world, marriage was the primary means of binding two families together, of gaining security of any means. Thus, these sons must immediately marry provide their family with anything in the hopes of surviving this tragedy. And since they're living in Moab, who do they marry? Moabites. Two women, Ruth and Orpah, which would have been super taboo at the time, but it's what they got to do to survive. If that's not bad enough, we continue. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. So, alas, tragedy strikes again. And this time it's Naomi's sons who both die, creating a truly precarious situation for her and these two daughters-in-law. Of course, there's the trauma, right? Naomi's been forced from her home. She's lost her husband, now both children, in a very short window of time, which alone would turn one's life upside down, would it not? Who here would be okay if that happened to them? Not me, Judahmite, apparently. That's kind of weird. <laughs> not me. That's traumatic alone. That is life-shattering alone. But you see, there's actually a more harrowing economic layer to this too, one that prevents Naomi from really even grieving this loss. Because you see, in the ancient world, there weren't such things as social safety nets. Thus, in a patriarchal society, a woman losing both her husband and her sons meant the evaporation of her income and her livelihood. Essentially, overnight, what you need to understand is that these women have become as vulnerable as possible in this society, in this place and time. 
They have become one of the most marginalized groups of people you could imagine. Thus, Naomi does the only thing that she can, determining to return to Bethlehem in the hopes of finding a family member who might generously take her in and essentially provide for her needs. And in that, as we'll explore next week, Naomi implores Orpah and Ruth to leave her behind. She can't provide from them anymore. But more than that, what is she? She's dead weight in any future marriage agreement that they might find as two young people. In other words, she tries selflessly to detach from these women because she knows that all she's going to do is hold them back. A request that Orpah, as we'll read, honors, but that Ruth, in defiance of all self-preservation, refuses, committing to follow Naomi no matter what, which becomes the impetus for the rest of this little slice of life story. This small tale of two marginalized women who, in response to tragedy, go on a journey of loyalty, generosity, and love, leading Ruth to, spoiler alert, unexpectedly meet and marry a kind Israelite farmer named Boaz, bringing about renewed joy to her and Naomi's life. It's a love story as old as time, one that's beautiful, if not also simple, small, mundane, in the context of the larger stories that we often tell. And yet, so I want to pause it for you, and yet, it's when this little tale gets combined with those two final features of Ruth that this story's deeper why, I think, just really lights up. Two features that we can now return to, having this broader narrative in mind. So first, there's what I find to be Ruth's most unique feature. You see, in the books surrounding Ruth, Genesis, Exodus, Judges, Samuel, God's directly involved and the story of his people like a lot. Who's read the story of the Exodus? Is God talking and acting a lot in that book? Yeah, he's confronting the wicked Pharaoh. He's liberating, he's guiding, he's leading his people. But in Ruth, what happens? We find the first book in the entire Bible in which God does not speak or act directly at all. Not even once. The utter silence of God throughout the entire course of this small tale, making Ruth this fascinating testimony about how God achieves his purposes in this world. And I want you just to think about this. We know that at the end of the story, God is going to restore Naomi's family from this tragedy. How does he do so? Does he do it by snapping his fingers? Does he do it by sucking her out of tragedy? Does he do it by wiping away her mind and taking her to heaven and she lives there in bliss for the rest of her days? No, no, no. How does God Restore Naomi from tragedy. Well, through divine silence, what Ruth depicts is that God's primary vehicle through which he brings about healing for the broken, grieving, and marginalized of this world is through us. Through the ordinary choices of ordinary people like you and me seeking to do good to those around us. That's how things get done in the book of Ruth. That's how people get restored. Particularly, though, through our willingness to mirror this core attribute of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, this powerful concept called hased. Who can say hased with me? Hased. This is going to be a critical word for the entirety of this book. You see, in English, what you're going to find is that hased is often translated as loving kindness, steadfast love, covenantal faithfulness. But in its totality, what it really describes is God's multifaceted, eternally faithful commitment to creation and us. This all-encompassing way of relating to others defined by divine loyalty, unrelenting compassion, the refusal to abandon even one person. 
and the unwavering commitment to love across any boundary. It's this beautiful, complex attribute of God, and critically for today, one that's meant to define who? Us, God's people. See, as people who receive God's said, God's faithfulness, God's love, God's mercy, we are called to relate to others with said, with radical said love, commitment, steadfastness, kindness, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And that's what Ruth depicts. Because if you think about it, in this broad narrative, in one of Israel's lowest historical moments, at the part where they are spiraling out of control, what does Ruth show us? It depicts God's people getting life with God right. Not through religious superheroes coming in to save Israel and the whole universe with them in this climactic story of Marvel, but no, instead through normal folks like you and me living out said in everyday life and their everyday relationships. That's how God moves in this story. That's God's antidote to the chaos of judges. And that's profound, right? Have you all ever thought of your daily decisions as being the antidote to the chaos of our world? To simply live a different way. To simply live oppositely of whatever breaks your heart in this world. That's powerful, is it not? To think that that is how God moves in this story. But there's still one more narrative feature that's critical for understanding Ruth's larger why, and it's tied to Ruth's conclusion. So again, spoiler alert, Ruth marries Boaz, and they start a family, and they restore Naomi's family line, and yay, happy endings, right? It's a beautiful ending to this story. But then in classic, like, Old Testament weird fashion, the author decides to tack on a closing genealogy to this happy ending. Who loves genealogy? Yeah, it's just like a family tree thrown on to the end of this book. And I want you to check this out. Ruth chapter four, verse 16, we read, then Naomi took the child of Ruth and Boaz in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David. So to conclude, the author just casually states, oh, BT dubs, uh, Ruth's son became the grandfather of David, the most important king in Israel's history, no big deal. But that's not all, because you see the gospel of Matthew also begins with a genealogy, Matthew chapter one, verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David, and then we jump down to verse five, and we find that Jesus' family line includes Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth. So what's Ruth about? You see, what I would posit for you is that Ruth is about how one poor, marginalized, foreigner, immigrant, outcast, widowed nobody, living in the middle of nowhere in the darkest moment of the history of God's people, became the fundamental piece in the lineage of the most important king of Israel's history, not only that, but of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Not because she was some hero, someone that history would remember, but because she was the opposite. She was someone who simply committed to making small, has said choices in each moment of her daily life. And that wrapped her up into something bigger, the healing, the salvation, the redemption of the entire cosmos. And in combining this slice of life story with that divine view, I think the book of Ruth's why just explodes off the page. You see, I think first in that it becomes this provocative reflection on our concepts of identity. 
through depicting its character's identity solely as their decisions making, depicting their identities solely as being formed and revealed by their daily lives, how they relate to others by their daily choices, I think Ruth asks us some challenging questions. It asks us, where do we ground our identity? Be that relational, familial, tribal, racial, ethnic, national, religious. Are we, like Ruth, letting God to said, reorient our identity in each sphere of our lives or not? But I think even more subversively than that, what Ruth demands is that we reflect on where we've misjudged the identity of others. Because I want you to consider this. I want you to think about this. Who models has said best in the book of Ruth? It's the name of the book. It's Ruth. It's Ruth. That would have been scandalous for an ancient Israelite audience. Why? Because Ruth's a Moabite, y'all. The person who models in mirrors the best in the entire story, the character of Israel's God, Yahweh, is it an Israelite? No. It's a Moabite woman who gets this life with God thing right in the story. A Moabite woman and an Israelite who doesn't view that identity marker as barring her from relationship with him. Those are the heroes of this tale. That's provocative, is it not? If you don't think it is, just replace Moabite with Muslim, Afghani, Russian, Chinese, Iraqi, whatever identity marker that you confuse with the word enemy, and understand that Ruth upholds that that person and that people grew are probably those who might be able to teach you what has said looks like best in your story. Anyone provoked yet? Anybody? Thank you. <laughs> it's provocative. In that, Ruth confronts what's about us said, being exemplified in those we deem outsiders due to their lack of power, perceived religious impurity, economic insecurity, or simply being born on the wrong side of some made-up border. And that should convict us wherever we've let some broken concept of identity get in the way of us, has said, loving those around us, mirroring our God in this world judging those through whom he works and whom he loves. And second, though, and this is actually the theme of Ruth that moves me the most. See, the second major part of Ruth's why is this invitation for us to reorient how we approach each singular moment of this life. You see, what I believe is that we tend to create a dualism, a divide in our minds between the secular and the spiritual the holy and the mundane parts of our lives. Church, prayer, growth group, that all goes in the spiritual stuff bucket. And then we have work, conversations with coworkers, partners, friends, how I treat my kids, giving to the poor, that's the non-spiritual stuff of life, right? That goes in my secular bucket of Mike Overstreet's day-to-day -day living. And y'all, I'm just gonna be frank, that's nonsense. That's absolutely nonsense. The Bible does not uphold that worldview at all. In Ruth, it's life's mundane areas that matter most. It's the daily commitments of ordinary people to acts of loyalty, love, generosity, and justice that intertwine them with the cosmic purposes of God. It's about people living out his said as a way of life, not because it ensures them some cosmic importance. Ruth's characters never even become aware of their role in God's larger story. No, they live out his said because they get that there is no divide between the spiritual and the secular moments of this life. That even the most boring, ordinary mundane 
Moments of this existence overflow with reasons for awe because every single one is a divine gift. What these characters get is that the only difference between a holy and an undamed moment is my perception of it, whether I am jaded or not. Because if I see my life as it truly is, then I recognize that every moment of it flooded with divinity. Every time that my child takes my hand, that I get to watch them play or wipe away their tears, that I have morning coffee with my wife, that I get to watch another movie, that I get to get up here and talk to you all. Every time that I get to comfort the afflicted, share in someone else's joy, provide peace in someone else's storm, every such moment is anything but mundane because each is overflowing with the presence, work, and gracious of said love of God. Each and every one is a gift. Who chose to breathe this morning? Not a single dang one of us. The most rudimentary part of our existence was given, not earned. This life is a gift. That's what Ruth is about. Yo, that's amazing, right? And it's also so challenging because that means that Hesed's modeled most not through the intellectual or theological ideas that I have memorized from seminary, but rather through my interactions with you people. And that's a bummer because knowing stuff about the Bible is a lot easier than dealing with some of your nonsense. (laughs) I mean, that means that the biggest stakes in my story occur in the most scaled down scenes, not in my heroic choices, but in my daily decisions to love you, to take seriously the impact I have on those who come across my path, which is a bummer because I can be a real jerk, y'all. This book reminds me that though smaller in focus, that call to daily Hasid living is a much harder path than any grandiose one-time heroic gestures of faithfulness because that requires daily intentional effort, moment-by-moment commitment, a total reorientation of my identity and trust that God's at work even in the spaces that he feels most absent. It requires believing that each present moment is where our God is found. And that it's through extending his set in such moments that we have any potential of being wrapped up into his redemptive story for these cosmos. As Mother Teresa once said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. That's the invitation of the book of Ruth. That's where we're going these next five weeks. And y'all, that is good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.